0: Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm
1: Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, a master of the legal thriller, John Grisham. A former lawyer and idealistic politician, the incredibly popular storyteller has a new book called The Exchange After the Firm. John Grisham takes the idea of a bestseller to a whole other level. More than 300 million copies of his books have been sold around the world. He's had an astounding 47 consecutive number one bestsellers, which have been translated into nearly 50 languages. At one point, in the spring of 1993, when he'd published just four books, Grisham was in the unusual position of having his latest title at the top of the hardcover bestseller list, and books in the first, second, and third spots on the paperback bestseller list as well. When his first novel, A Time to Kill, was published 34 years ago, as Grisham says, he couldn't give away the 5,000 copies printed. It's since been taught in schools and made into a Broadway show. When it was reissued after the phenomenal success of his second and third books, The Firm and The Pelican Brief, both of which were made into hit movies, the paperback of A Time to Kill sold 8.6 million copies and spent 80 weeks on the bestseller lists. Okay, enough with the numbers. Let me tell you a bit about John Grisham, The Man. He was born in Arkansas in 1955, the son of a sharecropper, who then managed to get a small farm. When it had lost so much money that the family had to abandon it, Grisham's father worked in construction, traveling around a lot in the South, and eventually they settled in South Haven, Mississippi. John was 12 and had athletic ambitions, later playing for his college teams. He denies any literary dreams, but he was a big reader as a child. He graduated in law from the University of Mississippi and returned to South Haven to start a small practice in criminal law. In the 1980s, he also ran as a Democrat in state elections and served in the Mississippi legislature for seven years. And at the same time, somewhat incredibly, he began to write fiction. Inspired by a scene that he'd witnessed in the courtroom of a young girl testifying against her rapist, he transformed it into a compelling book about racial tensions, featuring a black father shooting the white man who raped his daughter. And before A Time to Kill had even found a publisher, Grisham started on The Firm. It sold more than 7 million copies and was on the New York Times bestseller list for 47 weeks. But there I go again. More recently, John Grisham has been active as a director of the Innocence Project, dedicated to helping the wrongly convicted. His own 2006 nonfiction book, The Innocent Man, subtitled Murder and Injustice in a Small Town, was made into a six-part Netflix series in 2018. Grisham's latest books include The Judge's List, Suley, and his third Jake Briggins novel, a sequel to A Time to Kill, called A Time for Mercy. It's being developed by HBO as a limited series. Earlier this month, he came out with The Exchange, a kind of follow-up to his blockbuster, The Firm. It marks the return of the novel's hero, Mitch McDear, 15 years later. When I met John Grisham four years ago, he'd published The Reckoning, a somewhat different novel than his usual work, though it does revisit his fictional town of Clanton, Mississippi. The story is mostly set just after the Second World War, but features detailed scenes in the jungles of the Philippines where American POWs were held during the fighting. But The Reckoning still has his trademark legal battles in a Southern Gothic environment. I spoke to John Grisham in 2019 when he was in Toronto. Your new novel, The Reckoning, takes place in the fictional town of Clanton, Mississippi. And, and you've set some of your earlier books there, too, going right back to your first novel, mm-hmm. A Time to Kill. What's What's Clanton like?
0: Clanton is a typical uh, small town in the south, a county seat, 10,000 people, big courthouse in the middle of the square, The squares lined with shops, and that's where everybody goes to shop and buy and work and hang out and vote and go to the courthouse, and it's uh, very similar to the towns I grew up in in Mississippi when I was a kid. It's very similar to the town that I practiced law for 10 years before I started writing books.
1: What do you like, or what do you you not like about small-town Mississippi?
0: Well, it's... uh, a town a town like Clanton is, uh, let's say it's surviving. Um, I'm, you can't say it's prospering. But, you know, small-town small, small town America is um, declining in all 50 states. It's tough in, in these small towns to keep the young people there. There aren't many jobs. There aren't many careers. The schools may not be that great, and oftentimes they close when, you know, the population dries up. So small-town America is... Um, Certainly declining. More folks are moving to the cities, but you you do have um, a lot of your county seats are the centers of government. That's where the hospital is. That's where the good schools are. So they they survive. Maybe not prosper, but they survive.
1: So you enjoyed your time more or less in. in...
0: That's where I come from. You know, that's that, I write about it because that's what I know. I live in a town now, Charlottesville. It's uh, quite a bit bigger. It's hundred thousand people, I guess, in Virginia. That's still considered a small city, but it's big enough for me. I just I, I I love small towns. The people, the customs, the traditions, the drama, the everybody knows your business, everybody wants to know your business. I'm not saying I would want to live in one anymore, but they're but I know them and that's 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 me.
1: Your novel The Reckoning comes from a story that you heard 30 years ago about a murder in a small town. What happened?
0: Well, I was in the state legislature in Mississippi as a 30-year-old elected official. And back then at the state capitol, January, February, March, when we met in session to pass laws and govern the state, there was a lot of downtime, uh, way too much wasted time. And that's one reason I never really liked the job. But we would kill time uh, gathering in various offices and drinking coffee and, and listening to stories. And the stories were told by my colleagues in the house, all of whom were veteran politicians from all over the state. And there were some tremendous storytellers. And I, as a rookie, I was not allowed to speak much, so I had to, I had to listen. <laughs> and uh, I wish I'd taken notes of all the great stories I heard back then in the state capitol. But one day I heard this story about a, a murder in a small town in Mississippi in, 19, in the 1930s where a prominent farmer drove into town one day and parked, I think, in front of the hardware store, uh, walked inside, said hello to the, the owner, a guy he knew, pulled out a gun and shot him three times, and drove back home and sat on the porch and waited for the sheriff to come get him. And the sheriff did. And the sheriff said, you know, they knew each other very well. And the sheriff said, Pete, what, uh, what, what's going on? And he said, I have nothing to say. And he never did. And he was, was put on trial. He was convicted quickly. He was sentenced to die. Uh, it was a cold-blooded murder. And uh, back then, all this happened in less than a year. Back in the old days, the appeals didn't take too long. And... Um, the day before he was to be hung, back then it was hanging. And they hung you on the, uh, in the courthouse lawn where you lived, the county seat where you lived. They would build the gallows and, and string you up. The governor took the train to the small town and went to the jail. And he sat down with the guy and he said, look, Pete, we've known each other a long time. I have the power as the governor to... Uh, commute your sentence from death to life without parole, which I want to do. Uh, I don't I don't want to see you executed. But you got to tell us why you did it. And Pete said, um, I have nothing to say. So he took it to his grave. And the governor had never seen a hanging before. So he spent the night in town, had a front row seat the next day when they strung him up. There was speculation, of course, that there was something going on between the victim and the man's wife. But to protect her honor, to protect her reputation, he would never say. That's a heck of a story. I didn't—I heard it. I didn't create it. But I remembered it. And um, when I got ready to write The Reckoning, I I had this great old story that I'd tucked away for 30 years. And I was able to add my own— Embellishments, and here we go.
1: The, the central character of your novel, *The Reckoning*, is a man named Pete. Mm-hmm. Is that the same name, or you just use it now? Because I just use it you now just use it because that's yeah. that's the one. Uh, he's a cotton farmer, a Second World War veteran. As so you said it a little bit later, right. because of, you want the war right. there; it's very important in the story. Can you tell me a bit about him, about your
0: character? Well, he was certainly changed by the war. He he was. Back in those days when Pete was born in 1900, uh, and his family had land. And I was born on a cotton farm in Arkansas, and my family did not have land. My dad rented land, and his dad had rented land. And my dad was going to be a cotton farmer, and if if we had not escaped the farm when we were lucky enough to do so, I don't know where I would be today, but I wouldn't be here. We were lucky enough when I was six years old to— to get away from that life and go into something better but so i know i know a little bit about that world uh, because of my family history and but but the bannings own land the family own land and that's a big difference because you can make a little money and live fairly um a fairly high level of uh life in in that social structure in a small, small poor town in the, in the south so Pete had uh, money. He went to West Point, which uh, is extremely rare. But I, you know, I knew a guy like that when I was in Mississippi. When I was a kid. His older brother went to West Point, so it does happen. He was a military guy. He loved the military. He, he was not uh, too keen on the idea of being a farmer. He liked. He had seen the world, you know, as a as, as an army captain, and he didn't really want to go back and farm. But he had to when his parents died. And then the war broke out in 1941, and before, right before the war broke out, he was reactivated and sent to the Philippines, which was, um, which happened to a lot of soldiers uh, when when the, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. We had uh, 20 or 30,000 soldiers in the Philippines under the command of Doug MacArthur, and a, and a bunch of Filipino soldiers too. And we had, you know, we had a huge presence there, and the. Roosevelt knew immediately that uh, it was going to be hard to hold on to the Philippines, so I put pete in that in that hostile environment and I was al- always been fascinated with uh, i 'm not a war historian, but World War II does fascinate me because there's so many great stories, and the Bataan Death March was one that uh, I had read about before, and knew that it would be um, extremely compelling to write about
1: tell me Tell me more about what that was
0: well, when the Japanese finally uh, attacked the Philippines, there was no way we were going we to fight them off. They had a superior force, they had weapons, they had the air, they had the ground, they had the sea. And MacArthur knew that w- there was no way to hold the Philippines. He had been begging for more troops and supplies uh, from Washington and uh, promises were made, but he, he was left with without enough force to hold the Philippines. And when the Japanese, when the attack became preeminent, he withdrew to the Bataan Peninsula, a a section of jungle, section of jungle in, in, uh, east of Manila, west of Manila, in the Philippines, and he was going to make a last stand there, and there was no way to do it. The, the, the troops were surrounded, they were cut off. There were 75,000 people, 25,000 American troops and 50,000 Filipino soldiers and regulars and volunteers, and also support people all on this one peninsula uh, where there was no food, no very little water, and they were choked off. And um, they finally had to surrender. They had no choice because the soldiers were starving. Our, our men were starving to death, and uh, it was brutal. And then the, that that wasn't the worst part. Once they were, uh, once they surrendered, and these these are men who had not eaten much for several months, and most of them were sick. Most of them had dysentery. Most of them, there were a whole list of diseases they were suffering from. They were really sick men, and they were forced to march seventy miles in heat, and they were uh, beaten, punished, murdered by the Japanese guards. So the Japanese guards were extremely brutal, and a lot of our troops were just flat-out murdered along the way. They, were, they, they collapsed, they were beaten, they were run over by tanks. It was really... Uh, it, was, it was a terrible uh, period of time in, in that war. And I, um, I began reading some of the books written by these survivors, And I don't know how anybody survived it. But the more I read about the Bataan Death March and the imprisonment uh, in the Philippines, the more I wrote. And uh, Pete survived because he was a tough guy. And he came home and surprised his family when they realized he was alive. And they thought his family thought he was dead. The Army came to visit his wife and kids and said, we're, We're certain your husband has been has died uh, in, in the Philippines. We, we have proof. Of, we think we have proof of that. Well, he wasn't dead. And that was not unusual in World War II. And he came home and surprised his family when they realized he was alive. And then he found out some things had happened at home while he. they thought he was dead. And he could never uh, forgive the people who had not been faithful to him because of what he'd gone through. He had just suffered so much. He, he, he wanted to forgive them. But he couldn't do it, and that led him to um, to take the law into his own hands and and seek revenge.
1: Although is is there an irony in the fact that Pete survived Batan against the odds, only to almost willingly give up his life?
0: Yeah. Well, for him, uh, for him, it was a matter of honor. He felt like he had no choice. He reached a point to where he could not function as a Man, and also as a, a, a very wounded man after the war, he just couldn't physically, face,
1: physically, and psychically.
0: F- physically, emotionally, everything. Uh, he he had to he had to do what he did.
1: Can you talk a bit about the level of trust that Pete has with the townspeople of, of Clanton? I mean, what would the sense of betrayal in a small town like Clanton have been when when someone like him, one of the most prominent citizens is accused and convicted of, of murder.
0: A huge sense of betrayal because uh, he, he killed a very popular minister of the Methodist Church, and the, the, the feeling around town was whatever conflict these two men had, it could have certainly been settled without bloodshed. And the, Pete was a hero. He, he was also... Um, aloof. He was a, you know, he was a farmer. He, he had a bit more money than anybody else or most other folks. And he was of the planter class. He, again, he had the West Point education. He, he was a notch above. So he didn't really mix and mingle with uh, the common folks that much. But he, once the people realized what he had survived in the war and the fact that he came home after they thought he was dead, he was a hero. And for their hero to commit such a senseless crime... Most of the people in town took it as a betrayal. They just couldn't accept the fact that Pete had killed a man.
1: John Grisham, as you were saying, you were born in Arkansas and you lived on your family's cotton farm until you were six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. Your 2001 novel, A Painted House, is in part a fictional look at this time and place. Can you tell me a bit about the farm in
0: those early years? That book is very accurate up to a point. I was that little boy for the first seven years of my life living on that farm. That was my grandparents' home I lived in. Those are sort of my parents. I I moved the book 10 years um, back in time because I wanted to capture the Korean War and a couple of other things from the early 1950s. I was born in 1955. Uh, Luke in in the Paint House was born in 1945. And uh, I I wanted to capture... um, I wanted to collect all these old stories that I'd heard as a child. Uh, my grandfather was a big storyteller, and, and my dad, too. That was kind of the tradition. Oh,
1: the men in the family, that's unusual, yeah. I think.
0: Oh, yeah, very much so. And, and those days are still vivid. I, I, you know, I'll never forget uh, the first few years of life picking cotton and chopping cotton and, and riding on the tractor with my dad to plant cotton, to plow, and to pick cotton. Uh, I'll never forget my mother and grandmother working long hours to grow most of the food that we ate huge garden canning and putting food up for the winter chopping firewood cleaning it was a rough life it was it a was hard life late at night on the always on the porch late, late at night we would wait for the um, it was an old saying wait for the heat to break and I never could tell that it broke it was always so hot it was very you know this is the deep south and the cotton fields uh, it was you know, 95 degrees during the day and 80 at night, and we'd wake up in the middle of the night just, you know, soaking sweat, but we'd sit on the porch, and my mother and grandmother would um, shell peas and butter beans and talk about church stuff and neighbors, and and our our link to the outside world was the radio and the St. Louis Cardinal baseball team, and my grandfather had grown up a Cardinals fan from the 1930s with Dizzy Dean and some of those guys. My dad was a thought Stan Musial was, you know, walked on water, and and we would listen to the Cardinal game every night without fail. We knew where they were, where they're playing. We knew all the players, and uh, it was KMOX out of St. Louis broadcast all the games, and they had a huge antenna, and it, it, they covered the Midwest and the South, even to Florida. Again, that was our only contact with the outside world. We were very um, secluded, as most farm communities were back in those days.
1: What so, kinds of stories did your grandfather and, and father tell?
0: Well, all involving uh, conflict with neighbors and, <laughs> and um, fights. We'd go to town. We'd work Saturday morning, and and the big deal was going to town Saturday afternoon. We'd, we'd rush home at noon, eat quickly, uh, bathe, change clothes, and take off to town uh, because that's where the picture show was. You know, we'd go watch a movie. The ladies shopped. The men you gathered and talked and whatever. I don't recall a whole lot of drinking going on. It was, it was illegal to possess or drink alcohol. Uh, there was a lot of it, a lot of fights. Uh, you know, men were wanting to blow off steam. The teenagers were, you know, flirting with girls and that kind of stuff. But there were there was quite a few stories about folks, my grandfather had a, had a brother who, uh, who had a wife and six kids, and he um, got tired of being married. He jumped on a train one day and never saw him again. And his wife waited and waited, and finally when he didn't come back, she married another man and had six more kids. And then 50 years later, they found him living way out in Texas. Uh, some, some relative found him. And I'm not sure why he left, Uh, but uh, just, you know, stories like that that are kind of hard to believe, especially nowadays with instant communication. My grandfather was a brawler. It was not unusual back then for funerals to turn into drunken brawls, and uh, I think my grandfather was involved in some of those. Life revolved around the church, a lot of church activities. That was our social world, so... um,
1: did you feel religious?
0: We were super religious. You had no choice. You you were born into the, to that, that way of life, that culture, that 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 body of faith. I mean, when you're you were in church every Sunday and Wednesday, and you know, and and you your parents are always reading the Bible at night and studying the Bible, and it was a very um, strict, strong, Christian, Southern Baptist environment. Uh, that's, that was my environment. That's how I grew up.
1: You, you were seven when your family left the farm, kind of lost the farm. And your father was, mm. worked in construction and moved around for a while. And I read somewhere that every new town, the first thing you would do is get a library card and find out how many books you could take out. Were you encouraged to read by your parents?
0: We were encouraged to read from the time I can remember. My mother my mother has never liked television, and we were not allowed to watch much of it. And we would move from town to town, and we could, we could judge the quality of any new town by the number of books you could check out one week at a time. And there were four of us. So that's a stack of books we'd take home and pass around. We also uh, we could also find the Little League baseball field and inspect it and pretty much gauge and tell you what kind of town it was <laughs> because of the library and the ball field.
1: Now, I understand you love the Southern Gothic tradition in writing. Why? What, what do you find so appealing?
0: I love the South. I love the history of the South, as tortured as it is. Uh, but also the stories about prominent families that have gone haywire, lost their money uh through murder, insanity, or adultery, or those are just great stories. I've read a lot of Faulkner growing up because I had to. It was forced on us. But also Flannery O'Connor and uh Carson McCullers and, you know, other great Southern writers, uh who love Rudor Welty, who who love to write stories about uh, unusual people and families um, in the South.
1: Did you come around to liking Faulkner? You give him a little cameo in *The Reckoning*.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean you have to, you have to <laughs> appreciate the genius. But uh, I, I've stopped trying to read Faulkner. I, I, I grew up having to, forced at gunpoint by high school English teachers to read, to read Faulkner. And I, I've read a lot, I've read a lot of Faulkner, which actually had an impact on me because. My senior English teacher had mercy on us, and she also let us read other writers other than Faulkner. She, she made us read a book one time called Tortilla Flat by John Steinbeck, and I really liked the book. And she knew I liked it, so she um, gave me a copy of or a library book of, of, uh, of Mice and Men and Cannery Row, and, uh, and I fell in love with John Steinbeck. And she saved, she saved the best for last, uh, The Grapes of Wrath. When I read that, I thought this is—I you know, is, see why this is a great novel. And I, I remember thinking at times—I didn't, I didn't dream of being a writer. It was not a childhood dream. I didn't study it in college. It was, not, it, it was never thought of. Uh, but I do recall one time I was reading Steinbeck and The Grapes of Wrath, and I, I thought, I wish I could write that clearly. I wish I could write that clearly, and so I have always striven to write clearly. Even, even as a lawyer, I, I cut through all the you know all the extra words and verbiage and all that, and tried to make my briefs and, and pleadings as a lawyer, you know, read smoothly and clearly.
1: I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. John Grisham, you were the first in your family to graduate from college. What made you decide to study law?
0: I wanted to make a lot of money. And um, by the time I was ready for college, my father, through hard work, had uh, had come to own his own company, and things were a whole lot better for our family uh, financially. And my parents sacrificed to put their five kids in college, but you know we were we were doing a whole lot better. And so I was able to go to college uh, because of my parents. And about halfway through college, when I was about twenty years old, the first two years I had not been that serious. I was away from home finally, and I was really enjoying myself. But after two years, I realized I needed to, to. Buckle down and, and study harder. And a friend of mine was uh, determined to go to law school. And uh, he, he influenced me. He said, you know, we can, we're studying accounting. We can become tax lawyers. And, you know, people are always going to pay a lot of money for tax advice. And so I came up with this goofy notion of becoming a tax lawyer. And that got me in law school. And about halfway through law school, I finally studied tax law. And I said, this is the last thing I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'd also become sort of enamored with uh, courtrooms. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the mock trial, moot court style competitions in, uh, in law school. And I also, uh, my last year in law school, I, I would uh, watch the docket at the federal court down the street. And if a good lawyer was in town trying a big case, uh, I would cut class and go watch it. Just go watch the trial. Go watch the lawyer. And I, so I had this dream of becoming a, a big-time courtroom lawyer. That's what I wanted to be. And that, that kind of leads into a time to kill because I was in a courtroom five years later. And I watched a trial that I had no business watching. But it inspired me to create this drama that I thought was a pretty compelling story as told, as seen through the eyes of this young, idealistic lawyer in a small town in Mississippi, and that was my life. And, you know, he had a pretty wife and young family, and he was struggling to pay his bills and dreaming of the big case, dreaming of the big verdict, you know, with a lot of attention. And that was me in 1985 when I started writing A Time to Kill.
1: But you hadn't thought about being a writer, you hadn't planned on it. And, and the idea that, you, what what drove you to, I think, as you've talked about, waking up at five in the morning <laughs> on top of your day job? And yeah. even at, for a while there, you were in the state legislature and, and you start this novel. Now, I know you heard a compelling story, but.
0: Uh, you know, it's hard to remember what I was thinking in 1985. I. I was growing – after just a few years, I was growing sort of uh, disenchanted with the law practice. It, in a small town, there are too many lawyers, and it's it's hard to make a buck. Most of my clients were working people who couldn't pay me, you know, 80 bucks an hour when they're, when they're earning 15 bucks now. They can't pay me to write their will for them. So most of my work was for free or reduced fees. Um, and then being a politician? A politician was oh, – I thought it was going to be a, a big advantage. And it turned into be a big a dis- disadvantage because people would people – would, constituents would call and make an appointment to talk about some kind of legislative matter and get in the office. And before I knew it, they had a legal problem. And, I, and, and they were in my office. And they were voters. They voted for me. When you get elected, everybody voted for you. you know? uh, and, and I was going to run again. So I, I had to play politics with the law office to keep people happy, and it just bled me dry. I mean, it just really uh, took up so much time and energy. was I was getting tired of that. Even at the age of 30, uh, I didn't see much future in the law.
1: Although, were you driven at all by idealism in terms of engaging, certainly in terms of political change?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, in the early days, well, take politics. I ran for office at the age of 28 with some friends of mine from law school, because all through high school, college, and law school, we were sort of, um, not embarrassed, but uh, I guess that's the best word, embarrassed, because our state was the only state without a public kindergarten system. The educational system in Mississippi at the time was not very good. Teachers earned almost nothing. There There was no kindergarten. There were some good schools, but a lot of bad schools, and we, we decided to run in 1983 to try to bring about some serious changes in education in Mississippi. So we were very idealistic, and uh, then we got elected, most of us got elected, and we came face to face with the reality that uh, change comes painfully hard in that state. It's very really hard to change anything. And that was disillusioning for all of us. So it was a period of time, the mid nineteen eighties, where I was not thinking about a career change. I could have been a lawyer forever. I, w- I probably would have become a judge to get to get out of the daily grind of practicing law and to have a nice, guaranteed salary, which I didn't have um, because I had my eye on a particular uh, seat that was going to that was going to be uh, created. Because uh, in the U.S., you run for office
1: to become a judge.
0: Well, yeah, and that's that's a bad system. But we do that, so
1: it would conflate your legal and political yeah. <laughs> uh, expertise at that. At that yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's it's a bad system. In, in 36 states, we elect judges, and it's it's really we shouldn't do that because it becomes so politicized. You got to take the politics out of the court system. We we should. We're not going to do that. Um,
1: so before we get to what happened. You were working on writing A Time to Kill. Tell me a bit more about that story you heard, because both it and The Reckoning both have characters who take the law into their own hands. So tell me a bit about what you heard in that courtroom that, that drove you to write the story.
0: Yeah, in 1985, in our community, there was a horrible um, home invasion, break-in, that turned into something far worse. A career criminal who had just been paroled from prison, who was really a, a nasty character, broke in a house one day in the summertime and to steal some stuff. And he didn't know. He thought no one was at home. Turns out there were two, girls in the house, and it, it turned into a bad afternoon for them. He, when he finally left, he had uh, beat him and raped him and everything. He, he thought he'd killed him. So he he left, and they both survived. And it just—they called him. It just, and they him, and it, it just uh, really uh, electrified our community. It was just horrible. And I knew I knew the girl's father. I didn't know him well. He he was from a big family, nice folks, but not the kind of folks you want to start trouble with. And so for several days there was this. The gossip raged around the county about what that family might do to this guy who's in jail uh, because uh, the 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 feeling of the, the desire for revenge was so strong that we all felt it about six months later, he came to trial. he refused to plead guilty even though he had confessed and um, I was in the courtroom when um during the trial. It was time for the twelve-year-old girl to testify, and our judge, a wise old judge, my mentor, knew how bad it was going to be. And he did something I, I had never seen. He cleared the courtroom. He made all the spectators leave. Security was very tight. Cops were everywhere. He kicked everybody out. He kicked everybody out of the courtroom, our main courtroom. Put put deputies by the door. Everybody get out except the jurors, obviously, and the lawyers who were involved in the case and a few clerks. As a lawyer, I was an officer of the court, so I could stay. And um, they brought her in to testify against this guy who had done unspeakable things to her. And at times, she was... um, very brave. At times she was very frail. At times she broke down. At times there was not a dry eye in the courtroom except for the defendant who never showed any remorse. Uh, We were all kind of hiding our eyes, hiding our faces because it was so gut-wrenching. For about an hour she took us through every emotion known to the human soul. Hatred, love, you know, compassion, revenge, it was, it was a, an emotional roller coaster that was just palpable and, and physical. And finally, she, when she broke down for the last time, the judge said, okay, let's take a recess. And everybody left. We couldn't wait to get out of the courtroom. And I um, hit a side door. Knew where, I knew where all the back doors were. Went down the back stairs, ran to my car, got in my car, and I realized I'd left my briefcase in the courtroom, and I had to go get it. So I went back up the back stairway, back door, through another room, and I walked into the courtroom, and no, no deputy had stopped me. There was no security. The defendant was sitting in his chair, nonchalant, didn't care, and a few feet away was a deputy who was assigned to guard him. There was nobody else in the courtroom. No other—two humans and me. And I walked in to get my briefcase, and I walked by the defendant, and I had this unbelievable urge to do something to get revenge. I just hated the guy. It was hatred, okay? It was an emotional hatred. And it just stunned me. I said, if if I could get this close to this guy with a gun— I would shoot him for my daughter, and I would look at that same jury and I would say, "Now, what are you going to do to me? I have just done what each of you want to do. How are you going to handle me and um it was a you know it was a big moment in my life I didn't realize it, but i I walked away from there, and I thought about that, that moment for a long time. And he was found guilty, and he's probably still in prison if, he, if he's not dead. And um, I began thinking about this courtroom drama that became A Time to Kill. And after being obsessed with it for I don't know how long, I don't know how long, weeks, I guess – I finally said, "Okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to write this. I've never written anything before except legal briefs." And uh, finally, uh, late one night, my wife Renee was putting our son to bed, and it was you know late at night. And I pulled a legal pad out and I, <laughs> I wrote chapter one. This is how you write a novel: start with chapter one. <laughs> and that uh, that's how it got started
1: but you decided to make sort of racially inflected. Mhm. Yeah. You had two white guys attack a small black girl.
0: Based on a true story. Uh that's a true the first chapter is based on a true story that happened probably an hour from where I lived at the time back in the uh late 1970s a horrible attack by two uh two really rough uh white guys they picked up a little black girl and and the way I heard about it, I heard about the case when I was in law school. Um, the case became somewhat noteworthy because they sentenced the two boys to uh, prison, but not for very long, and the whole community was upset, blacks and whites. They thought that the, the guys should have gotten you know, a long, long sentence, and they didn't. Uh, again, this was um, 40-some-odd years ago. Uh, So I I heard that story in law school, and that was the inspiration, if you call it inspiration, the idea for the first chapter. And then their father, of course, is the father who gets revenge.
1: As I was saying earlier, both The Time to Kill and The Reckoning have characters who take the law into their own hands. Are there times when you feel it is morally defensible to, I guess it's vigilantism, even if it means uh, killing someone?
0: No, I can't. I can never justify it. Um, that's one reason I'm opposed to capital punishment. That's nothing but retribution. And, you know, we, we do take the law into our own hands when we approve of these laws and we vote for politicians who pass these laws and we vote, we vote for prosecutors and judges who impose these laws um, that call for the killing of people. That's retribution. That's the capital punishment that we have in the U.S., and I'm very much opposed to that. Uh, if killing is wrong, and we all agree that it is, then how can the state be justified in its efforts to kill? And it still bothers me that the book excuses uh, vigilante justice uh, because you can't, no, no, no civilized society can survive with that.
1: It's it's the
0: persuasiveness of your
1: writing that makes the reader and in the movie version the viewer want that um, the father of that girl to to get off, yeah. you know, to be exonerated. So, yeah. John Grisham in in two thousand six, you wrote a book called The Innocent Man about the murders of two women and the men who were convicted for those murders. What made you decide to write about these cases, especially as you hadn't written nonfiction before.
0: The story was just so compelling. Ron Williamson died in December of 19... Um, he was exonerated in 1999. He died in 2004 uh, of cirrhosis. And I read his obituary in the New York Times, and it was the lead obituary that day with a picture of Ron in court with the same age, same race, same... Social background, same economic back, same same neck of the woods. He was a small town in Oklahoma. I was a small town in Arkansas, and he was a sports star in this town of Ada, Oklahoma. And uh, I thought, how can a guy like this end up on death row?
1: Because he was an aspiring baseball player, like you were. He in was a
0: first. He was a lot better than I was. He was a first-round draft pick of the New Oakland A's in 1972. Uh, I was never a draft pick. Okay. <laughs> I was barely good enough to play in high school, and I I thought, uh, how can a sports star like this be sent to death row and come within five days of being executed for a murder he did not commit? That's that's a great story, and I took off to Oklahoma, and uh, met his two sisters and family, and started digging. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not a journalist. I I'm not trained as a journalist.
1: But you didn't think, what a great story, now I'll turn it into a novel as you, have had, as, as you had done with yeah. so many other great stories? I'm not
0: sure. If I had fictionalized it, I'm not sure folks would believe it. You can, you can do anything you want to with fiction, but it's got to be plausible. And so many of these stories, especially with wrongful convictions, are just uh, not plausible. They're true. You can't believe the system breaks down the way it does, and we convict so many innocent people. So, once I got into the world of wrongful convictions, I'd never worried, thought too much about them before. I was startled at the sheer number of wrongful convictions that we have in our country, and uh, it's still something that I write about now. And um, it's very gratifying now to see a film version of what happened in Ada in the mid-1980s with these two murders, two of those boys are still in prison for the second murder 30, 34 years later. We're still trying to get them out. We can't prove their innocence because there's no DNA. DNA is, is um, at play in about 10% of the cases. There's so many cases, criminal cases where there's no DNA, and so you, you have no clear biological proof that can be tested. So you have to go back to the, to the scene of the crime Talk to witnesses and dig and dig and dig, and it's not easy. Uh,
1: Especially so, in that case where there were coerced confessions, and it's a whole uh, other dimension to the, to the narrative. Yeah.
0: I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in New York and have been for 12 years. We're up to 370 DNA exonerations. Again, this is clear-cut, undeniable scientific proof that these people are innocent. In about 25% of those cases, there were false confessions. And jurors never believe that you would confess of a murder, you, you know, to a murder you didn't you didn't commit. And not only will jurors uh, never give you a break, judges, also and appellate judges, if you can, if, there, if there's a confession, I don't care how shaky it is, I don't care, I don't care what the police used with their abusive interrogation tactics, and they have a lot of them. Forget all that stuff. Oftentimes, the the confession does not match the crime. There's no, there's no connection. Okay. Well,
1: that came out in this one too, oh, because yeah, the confession the, was about knifing and then knifing they, and, and burning. They, yeah. And eventually they found out it was it was a gunshot.
0: Shot in the head. Yeah, and and they're still they're still in prison. We can't get them out. Um, but in, in 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 our in our in our exonerations, think about that. Twenty five percent of the time, the person confessed. Almost every time, the next day they say, "Wait a minute, you tricked me into confessing. Are you?" You misled me, you lied to me, which which the cops can do uh, legally. So false confessions are a real problem. Uh, faulty forensics, junk science is a huge problem in wrongful convictions. And, you know, that's what we're trying to um, work to eliminate with the Innocence Project. <laughs>
1: In your first novel, A Time to Kill, the young lawyer Jake Briggins takes on a difficult case. You've said Jake is as autobiographically close to you as any of your characters. He came back a few years ago. He showed up in uh, Sycamore Row. So you stopped practicing law after 10 years, but Jake is still there. What's he learning about that that you left behind?
0: Tough question. Uh, the, The hardest thing about writing Jake now is that 30 years have gone by and um, I'm not the same person I was 30 years ago. I'm not the same person Jake, I was with Jake 30 years ago. So I've changed after 30 years of growing up and growing old, and Jake and had, growing rich. <laughs> I've made a few bucks, sold a few books, uh, but I, I, I don't think like that anymore. And and that's a real challenge when I write Jake now because he's still going to be in his early 30s. You know. My, my wife was not too keen on the idea of going back to Ford County uh, when I wrote Sycamore Row. And she said, you're not that Jake anymore. You, you've, you're, you're 30 years older. You, you've, you've changed in so many ways. And I have changed a lot of beliefs and a lot of um, ideas over the last 30 years. Uh, she, said, you, you, she said, I'm not sure you can find that voice again. And I said, okay, let me try. Let me try. And so I wrote two, the first two or three chapters, and uh, she read it, and uh, she she was on board. She's a tough critic.
1: In terms of how things have changed or not changed in race relations, when you mentioned living in Charlottesville, Virginia, there's all, what's most recently in the news yeah. there is uh, the...
0: Horrific. Unite the Right Rally, August 12, 2017. Uh, we're, still, we're still shocked by it uh, because those people are not from there. They came from 35 states to Charlottesville for that rally to uh, start a fight. And they fought for two days, and uh, a girl got killed. Uh, a bunch of folks got wounded, and they packed up and they left. And we get the black eye. You, know, you mentioned Charlottesville now. People think of white supremacists and skinheads and Nazis and you know David Duke, and he was there in the rally, and that's what you think about. That's not Charlottesville. Charlottesville is a wonderful little college town with a great university that is uh, very diverse and very tolerant and uh, very open. Uh, that's why we love it. Yeah.
1: Oh, I know. I mean, I, I think of it as a university town. That's how I've always known yeah. it. But for a man from the South to see that people from 35 states are involved in this, it's no longer a, a, r- a racial issue of, of the South in the right. United States.
0: No, and it's alarming, the, the rise of these hate groups. And, and they've been emboldened by Trump and, and his uh, brand of politics. And they, as they say, we're coming off the Internet we're in the streets now. We've been, we've been organizing on the internet for years. Now we want, we want to take it to the streets. And uh, that's pretty scary. And the, the number of hate groups uh, is increasing. Um, I've seen the video and the images from Charlottesville. We weren't there. We were out of town. We were on vacation. And we watched it to, on television like the rest of the world. Uh, but some of the photography I've seen, videos and images of these groups – these militias who were in the park at 9 o'clock that morning ready for, ready for, ready for war. It's pretty scary. These guys are, you know, they're, they're frightening. Is I, this
1: something you think you'll write about?
0: I have no plans to write about mm-hmm. groups like these, the hate groups. Um, maybe. I, I've learned over the years to not try and predict what's going to happen next year or the following year. I, I I can't say I'm not going to write about hate groups. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want that, that. That's so depressing. I don't. I don't want to learn more about them. I don't want to have to go research them. I know they're out there, but I just I'd rather not do that.
1: I'm so glad to have the chance to meet you. Thank you very much. My
0: pleasure. My pleasure. Always. Uh, I'll come back. All right. Okay.
1: <laughs> John Grisham in Toronto in 2019. The Reckoning is available in paperback from Anchor. His brand-new novel, The Exchange, is published by Doubleday. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Will Yar. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, unoriginal. England's Jeanette Winterson. Her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, reveals the true story behind her hit first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Now she has a new book of ghost stories. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.